what's your favorite game? Do you have one? Angry Birds. Angry Birds. <laughs> you know, I'm glad you said that. Not too long ago. <laughs> that was the game of choice, Angry Birds. And it is okay for birds to be angry, isn't it? It's okay. It's a game. No birds were hurt in the production of that game or anyone playing it. Maybe a few brain cells fried, but that's about it. And it's okay for us sometimes to get angry, as we sometimes do, and other people get angry, and hey, it's part of life. But when it comes to God, is it okay for God to get angry? And the problem is that sometimes God really does seem angry, doesn't he? And if we had to draw, if, you know, a psychologist came and sat you down and said, draw me a picture of what God looks like, the way you imagine him. You know, sometimes we would imagine him as this very loving, kind person with a little lamb in his hands. Have you ever seen those pictures? Yeah, and sometimes he seems a little bit angry. And then if you were asked to draw a picture or paint a picture of what God looks like as you're reading the Bible, that picture would change a fair bit depending on where you're reading, wouldn't it? Sometimes cute and cuddly, children in arms. Other times, I tell you what, it's not exactly that cute, loving, cuddly image that you may see. A warrior, someone with a sword, angry, upset, terrible, judgmental, wrathful, fire-breathing dragon. So how do we make sense of this? Because for many of us in our journey in wanting to get to know this God of the Bible, we struggle with the idea, with the reality, with the concept that God doesn't always seem to be consistent. And I want to get to know him. I want to follow him, but I want to follow more the God of the New Testament. And even there, there's a few times in the New Testament, you know, fire and brimstone, eternally burning hell. I'm not sure. You know, there was a guy in the early second century who had a problem with this, so he decided to make up his own Bible. He just cut out of the Bible all the bits and pieces he didn't like. I think he was left with about two chapters in Luke. That was the extent of his Bible. You know, Richard Dawkins, one of our uh, friends on the other side, the following to say about the God that he understands. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Okay, that's his image of God, right? Obviously not the cute and cuddly lamb-holding God that we sometimes envisage. So how can we get close to this God that really does come across that way? How can we make sense of some of the stories in the Bible that seem to portray God in that way? Well, first we need to identify who the God of the Old Testament is. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 58. That's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus is talking to a group of religious leaders here, and they're asking him about his identity. Who are you? You don't have a degree? You didn't go to any of our colleges. You're not from Oxford, Cambridge. We didn't give you the the approval, the permission to speak in public. Who exactly are you? Why should we take you seriously? Why should people follow you? John uh, 8 and verse 58. I better find it too. And there Jesus answers to them. And he said, truly or verily, truly, Truly, I'm telling you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Abraham may not be a familiar character to some of us. Abraham lived thousands of years before Jesus. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. 
Now, I am not an English scholar, and my grammar is not great, and spell check does wonders every time I write anything. And for some of you, English may not be your first language. I know it's not mine. But if you wanted to say I was before someone, would you say before Bob I was? Isn't that a little bit better English? Or I was before Bob? Instead of saying before Bob, I am? Bit of a grammatical issue, right? What is Jesus doing? What is he saying? Why does he phrase it this way? Uh, Has he sort of uh, lost his grammatical skills? Did he miss out on that class in primary school? What's going on here? Well, that particular way of identifying yourself, at least to the Jewish leaders, resonated with something from the distant past. Let's go back early on, back towards the beginning of the Bible, to Exodus. The second book there, Genesis. Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. The very word Exodus means journey, travels. Genesis means beginnings. Exodus is the book of travels, the book of journey. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. Here there's an ancient biblical character by the name of Moses. He sees a burning bush, a tree basically, a tree that's on fire. Imagine a hedge that's burning. The problem with his hedge is that it keeps burning and burning and burning and never burns out. He gets closer and closer to it and then all of a sudden he starts to hear a voice. And it's God speaking to him. And he wants to know, well, who exactly are you? Which God are you? What God are you? Tell me about yourself. What's your name? When somebody asks me who I spoke to, what do I say? And there in verse 14, God says, God said to Moses, I am that I am. And say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. My name is Christian. What's your name? God says, I am. Fast forward a few thousand years later, they ask Jesus, who are you? And what does Jesus say? I am. Can you see the link, the connection there? So Jesus is making a very significant claim. He's saying, yeah, this is me in the New Testament. This is me holding lambs, cuddling children, raising the dead, healing the sick. But back 2,000 years ago, the guy who led the Israelites from slavery to freedom, the guy who commanded some seemingly horrendous things, the guy who sometimes seems quite angry and upset and cruel and barbaric, the way Richard Dawkins describes him. Who was that guy? What does Jesus say? Pick me. It was me. It was still me. So when you read the word God in the New Testament, God did this, God did that, just to make it a little bit easier, I'd invite you to actually insert the word Jesus because that's how he describes himself anyway. Now, that doesn't exactly solve the dilemma, does it? It almost makes it worse. Because it was okay if there was a bad God in the Old Testament and a good God in the Old Testament. That's okay. I can deal with that. Just get rid of the Old Testament. Don't bother reading the early part of the Bible. But all of a sudden, the God of the New Testament says, it's still me. I'm the same guy. How do we make any sense of that? We're going to explore a few brief stories. In Exodus 4, verse 22, God identifies himself, Jesus, I should say, identifies himself as the God um, of the Old Testament. And listen how he describes himself. Exodus 4, 22, just a chapter across. And you will say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. Throughout the Old Testament, God, Jesus describes himself in a relational context as the father talking to his children. 
again and again and again. So let's get to know, I guess, the God of the Old Testament a little bit through the eyes of one or two particular stories. The Bible says God created everything. And if you were here in the workshop earlier, uh, Pastor Andrew was saying, we're discovering that in genetics, we're degenerating. Society, humanity, our bodies are not getting better. We're losing genetic code. If we keep going, we're not improving. We're not expanding. We're not developing as a human race. We're getting worse and worse and worse, even genetically. Right at the beginning, the Bible says that God created everything good. Why did he create? Well, for those of you that were here last night, God is love. He creates to, to give, to share himself and everything he has. The same reason why couples have children. They want to share their life, their joy, their happiness, their possessions, their time. So God creates everything in perfection. Now, to love is to give, as we said. And the other problem with love is, for there to be genuine love, there has to be freedom. Is that a fair comment? Have you ever had a relationship with someone, a good, positive relationship, whether it's a parent, whether it's a a spouse, whether it's a boyfriend, girlfriend, whether it's just a, a friend of the same gender that you enjoy hanging out with that refuses to give you any sort of freedom and you've said, hey, that's a great relationship. Has that ever happened to you? In fact, when the other person in the relationship starts to take a bit too, a bit too much control, how does it feel? Not good. You quickly find the exit sign, you know, the green sign, white writing, <laughs> way out. There has to be, you cannot have good relationships, genuine love, without freedom. But there's another problem with love and freedom, that when you give freedom, there is a risk, isn't there? Now, what's the only way to avoid risk? How would you avoid risk? Take away freedom. freedom. (laughs) Don't love. Don't love, no risk. Create robots. There's no more freedom. There's no relationships. There's no communication. But hey, there's no risk. But God isn't like that. God by his very nature is loving. So he creates and he gives freedom. And in that freedom, I know what that's like. I've got two girls. You know, they have freedom. When you have freedom, there's a risk that sometimes the people who have received your love and who have benefited from everything you give may misuse and abuse that freedom. Anyone that's ever gone into a relationship, how many times have you gone into that relationship, especially a romantic relationship, knowing for sure that there could possibly be no risk of getting hurt? How many, how many times have you gone into that knowing this is it? There is no pain from here on, no risk whatsoever. And yet, why are we silly enough to still do it? Because the benefits outweigh the risk, don't they? Hey, it's worth getting hurt every now and again to find the right one and to experience that love, that fulfillment that good relationships can offer. There's risk. There is a possibility of something going wrong. We won't go into the entire history. If you'd like to get to know this story more, talk to Roy and Jinhar afterwards. But to cut a long story short, in the Garden of Eden, God created a beautiful, perfect place. And he said to Adam and Eve, here is your world. This is your birthday gift. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? My birthday gifts are usually anywhere between $2 to 20 God says, well, I'll give you a planet. Look after it, it's yours. But God does something interesting. And some people say, why on earth would God put a tree in the middle of the garden and tell them don't eat it. Wouldn't it have been easy if he didn't put the tree there? Hey, bingo, problem solved. But see, God is so good and his love extends to such, I guess, it has no limits that he actually says, you don't even realize you have a choice. I want you to know you have a choice. I love you. I created you. This planet is yours. But 
you can do whatever you want with it. Here are my instructions. My instructions are like this. Do this, do that, do that. You'll have a fantastic planet. Or, if you want, you can choose to eat from this tree and by doing so, say, you know better, you want to do what you want without listening to me, in which case, hey, you apply your own principles, your own rules, your own laws. From the very beginning, God did not create robots and the tree was really a sign of his love to say, you're free. You're free to choose. You didn't even know you had choice. I'm telling you, you have choice. It's up to you. Do as you please. After some time, we don't know. Could have been weeks, months, years. We don't know. But after some time, Adam and Eve said, you know what? Uh, We don't trust God fully. We think we'd like to do things our way. They go and the rest is history. And after they choose to, instead of living by the principles of love, but they chose to be selfish. That's really the only two extremes in the universe. Love to give of yourself unconditionally and selfishness to think of me, myself and I and nobody else. So they choose to be selfish and then they pass down this selfishness from generation to generation. And within a matter of centuries, let's go to Genesis chapter 6. Within a matter of centuries, the Bible describes the state of the world in this particular way. Exodus, sorry, Genesis chapter 6. Chapter 6 and we're going to read verse 5 and then we're going to skip across to verse 11 and 12. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 11 and 12, the earth was corrupt before God. The earth earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. How would you describe the society that we find ourselves in about a thousand or so years after creation? It says the thoughts of every person that lived on earth except for one guy and his family, which it mentions as well, his name was Noah, the thoughts of everybody were what? Continuously, all the time, 24-7, selfish. Absolutely. You know, we, we all have friends and we all have family. And if you had to draw a spectrum between unconditional love and selfishness, an average spectrum of the people that we know, most of the people we know are selfish every now and again, right? Right? Even parents sometimes, yeah, they are a little bit. And most of the people we know are probably pretty good, pretty kind sometimes. So somewhere in the middle you've got this happy equilibrium. People we know have a bit of selfishness, uh, and they're also kind and happy medium. Here it says there was no happy medium. Everybody was continuously wicked. Can you imagine living in a society where everybody thinks of no one else but themselves? What would that be like? What a happy time. (laughs) Freedom, party, anarchy. How safe would you feel when everybody around you is completely selfish? You get on the road and there are red lights, there are stop signs, there are traffic laws, but nobody's thinking about anybody else. They're just thinking, I need to get from A to B and I need to get there now. And they have total disregard for the laws out there. How safe would you feel? You know, you're walking along down uh, the Yarra River there, South Bank, holding, you know, your, your hand, your w- wife's hand, and all of a sudden some guy comes and just takes her, puts her in a van and says, she's my wife now. <laughs> no, she's not. Well, if you want her, come and get her. So you've got to get your boys and get your guns and go get your wife back, and they've got their guns. I mean, we're talking about absolute chaos. That's exactly what the Bible is describing at a time in history where the entire world has gone mad. Now, how happy do you think a community full of selfish people would be? 
when I'm selfish and everybody gives in to my selfishness, that makes me pretty happy. But when I'm selfish and you're selfish, we've got a problem. Because <laughs> it's me or you, right? Chaos. Anarchy. That's the kind of world that the Bible describes. So what does God do? Genesis 6, chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. God said to Noah, The end of all flesh is coming before me. The earth is filled with violence. It wasn't just selfishness. This selfishness, I want your wife, I want your iPhone, I want your car, turned to violence. I'm going to take it by force. And if I take something of yours by force, what are you going to do back to me? You're not going to sit there and say, oh, he's stronger. No, you're going to try to do the same. We're talking about people literally destroying and making their lives and each other's lives extremely miserable. And then God says uh, uh, to Noah, make an ark of gopher wood, uh, rooms, uh, make rooms in the ark, pitch it, and uh, put pitch on it, that's tar, sort of seal it within and without. God says there is a, a plan to resolve this issue. Now, initially, when you look at this plan, it looks like extermination, doesn't it? Everybody's bad, and God says, I'm going to kill you. But as you start to look at Exodus, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, it says that God is going to give another 120 years of time. So people are really bad. They're killing each other. It's a horrible place to live on. And God doesn't say, I'm going to do something about it straight away. God says, look, Noah, I want you to build a boat, and we're going to give this another 120 years. Does that sound like an angry God? Does that sound like a God who says, I've had enough? Does that sound like a God who says, you know what? As bad as it is, I'm willing to keep trying. Noah, go build a boat. And then he tells Noah, if you read in the New Testament, Noah becomes a preacher. He starts to talk to people and he says, guys, the world is horrible. Nobody's happy because we're all selfish and we're all destroying each other. And God said, there's a huge flood coming and it's going to destroy the world. And he's told me to build an ark to save my family and I and the animals. Hey, maybe you can get on board too. There seems to be plenty of space. So what does God do? Does, does God sound like he's coming, you know, with lightsabers, just destroying everybody? No, God actually warns humanity 120 years before and he builds a rescue raft and he sends Noah out there and there's all the time in the world for people to come on board. Then, just when the boat is ready, the Bible says in verse 9 and 10 that the animals by themselves come on to the boat. Can you imagine being there so you're just you know, minding your own business, having a uh, latte down here on uh, Elizabeth Street, and as you're there enjoying life, all of a sudden you see two elephants walk past. There's the giraffes, and then the lions, and then some crocodiles, and you see this massive procession of animals, and you start to follow them. I wonder where they're going. What's going on? We have trams, but I've never seen an elephant walk past. And as you're following them along, you realize they're going to the ark, and there's nobody pushing them. Some invisible hand is guiding them. Wow, wouldn't that make you pause to think? Hey, wait a minute. Said God said that uh, the earth was going to be destroyed by a flood. Hey, maybe I should get on board. And then it says that when all the animals are on board, that God actually shut the door. So you're there watching as all the animals go on board. And then this invisible hand shuts this massive door. Hey, shouldn't you have some alarm bells going off? Ding, 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 ding. Maybe something's happening here. And then how quickly did it start to rain? Seven whole days. Does it look like God's in a rush to destroy anybody? Is that the kind of image you're getting? 120 years from now, there's going to be a flood. And there's a rescue raft. And then just a few weeks before, the animals start to come. And then seven days before, the door shuts. And then still nothing. Does it look like God is out there angry, just waiting to pummel people into submission? 
That's not the kind of image I get. Finally, the rain comes. And then there is destruction. Why? Why did God even have to do that in the first place? Every now and again in the Old Testament, we see God doing some drastic things. God has given us freedom, and humanity with the freedom it's had has done some drastic things to itself. And every now God intervenes every now and again to try to steady the boat in a very difficult, complex, messy situation. It's God's last resort. It's his final option. It's the last thing he does before humanity self-implodes and becomes extinct. The way the world was going, it wouldn't have lasted much longer. A society, a world full of selfish evil people. Are they happy? No, they're not happy. Does he love them? Absolutely. Each and every one is his child. Does he warn them? Does he tell them? You know, he doesn't even ask them to behave. He just says, there's a boat, get on it. And what do they choose to do? Door shuts, seven more days. It starts to rain. When we look at each story in the Old Testament that makes God seem so angry and evil and selfish, again and again, when we look at the context, we don't find a God who's in a rush to hurt anybody. We find a God who tries to steady the ship when humanity has made such a mess of things. And God intervenes just before tipping point, just before humanity becomes extinct, just before that community self-implodes, self-destructs. Then and there, God, out of mercy, out of kindness, out of love, even for the evil people who are hurting themselves and others, God intervenes in a quick way to put an end to misery. If you've ever worked on a farm, you know when a horse has gone beyond the point of no return, the horse might very well be alive. It might still be kicking and breathing and moving, but you know it's never coming back. It's not going to be restored. It can't be healed. And what do farmers do? You get a shotgun, quick, painful death. Do they do that? Painless death. Do they do that because uh, they hate the horse? No. might be their favorite animal. They do that. Out of love. If you've ever sat by the bedside of someone that's dying, that's gone through a coma, that's on life support, sometimes you have to make that choice to turn the life support off. Is it because it's costing money? Is that why you turn the life support off? It's because there's nothing left that can be done. And that's when God intervenes. I don't have that on the slides, but I mean, just a simple example. In the Old Testament, God says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Have you ever read that? He says to the Israelites, if somebody knocks your tooth out, what should you do to them? Well, bring them before the council, pin them down, get a hammer, and <laughs> knock their tooth out. That sounds like fun, doesn't it? If, if they take your eye out intentionally, gouge it out with a sword or a spear or a knife, what should you do? Bring them before the council, tie their hands up, get the chisel out. And you know what? That's not God talking. That's Jesus. The same Jesus of the New Testament, the very one and only. How do we make sense of that? What is God doing? He's making the best of an incredibly messy situation that humans have descended into. In that context, in that society, if somebody knocked your tooth out, what was the norm? What happened? What did people do to each other when they felt mistreated? You knock my tooth out? I'm going to knock your head off. You take my eye out? Well, I'm going to get my cousins and my brothers and my family and we're going to stone you and your family to death. We're going to rape your children. We're going to burn your house down because you knocked my eye out. So in the context of cruelty and barbarism, God comes in and he says, that's not okay. 
God is talking to people who don't have the capacity to understand love and kindness and forgiveness. These guys are barbarians, basically. They've just been in slavery for 400 years. And you know that because when they come through the Red Sea, so the Egyptians are chasing them. There's this army that's chasing the slaves who have just been freed. They cross through the Red Sea. God opens it miraculously to save them. Then the Red Sea closes. They're safe. And then three days later, they want to kill Moses. Why? Because Moses hasn't brought McDonald's for them. We had McDonald's in Egypt. Now we don't have McDonald's. We're going to kill you, Moses. That's the kind of people that God is dealing with. So try to tell someone like that. If somebody takes your tooth out... Just pray for them, hug them, be nice to them. That doesn't work. You start with the basics. Try telling a child the concepts of love and forgiveness at the age of one. They don't get it. A child needs some form of punishment to understand. I was punished as a child. My parents never hit me, but they had punishment. When I became 20, I didn't have to go to the corner anymore. Punishment changes with time. God is doing the best in very messy, difficult situations. 2,000 years later, Jesus comes along and he says, Hey, you, I and I a tooth for a tooth back then. Hey, that was early days. We're trying to uplift humanity from the depths of the sickness of what sin has done. I'm telling you, if somebody slaps you, what should you do? Turn the other cheek. We're growing. Now, I've got two little girls, and I can't talk to them about sacrificing their toys. With my two little girls, when one of them wrongs the other one, what's the solution at this age for them? If she took your toy... You can take her toy. <laughs> eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Lego for a Lego. Doll for a doll. That's all they can understand. Does that make me an evil parent? I tried the other way. Now, Caitlin, let's talk about love. Let's talk about being selfless. Glazed look. Has no idea what I'm talking about. But she understands when she loses her ice cream because she took Sienna's. She gets that. That's exactly what God does again and again in the Old Testament. If only we took the time to look at the stories a little bit more carefully. So then we get to the New Testament and we find Jesus and he seems so kind and so loving, except for this one particular story where he seems really angry. Let's go to Matthew 21. New Testament, first book there in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to read from verse 10 to verse 13. And when Jesus came to Jerusalem, the entire city uh, was moved, saying, Who is this? The crowd said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And he said, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. So the same Jesus who seems angry many times in the Old Testament, all of a sudden is starting to let some of his anger show through again in the New Testament. Can you imagine just being a regular storekeeper in Jerusalem and Jesus comes through with a whip in hand and scares you to death and gets rid of your money and your stock and your animals? How would you feel towards Jesus? Let's just say not favorable, right? He wouldn't be your favorite customer. But what exactly was going on? What was happening? Now it says he came to the temple and to clean the temple. When we think of the temple, as we start to get to know the Bible, the temple we imagine as this place here of of worship you came in here the sacrifices happened somewhere in there there were some sacred objects in there and that's how we imagine the temple to the average jew that thought of the temple when jesus was around that was the temple 
It was significantly bigger than how we sometimes imagine it. Now, the temple had a number of different sections. This was the wall that kept the Gentiles out. So if you didn't have Jewish blood in you, bad luck. You couldn't get too close to God. This was the court that the women were allowed to enter into as well, Jewish women. And only Jewish men could cross into the physical, I guess, the the real temple where all the sacrifices happen, where you could see the the basin and some of the other sacred objects. Now, when the Jews referred to the temple, they referred to the entire structure. When you said, I'm going to the temple, that's what you're referring to. Up here, you've got the Antonia Fortress. That's where the Roman soldiers were stationed to keep the peace. If you were here last night, I talked to you about a soldier who decided to have fun one Passover. There's 250,000 Jews in Jerusalem. He's up there and he decides to pull his pants down for the Jews below. It was a massive revolt. You can imagine why. This is their sacred place of worship. Now over here, you see all these little rooms, this long corridor portico there, as well as down here, you had shops. What were the shops for? Well, let's say you lived at some distance from Jerusalem and you wanted to come to these religious festivals to worship. In their religious system, you had to sacrifice an animal. So you bring whatever animal you're about to worship. But if you're traveling, let's say, from Damascus, Damascus is 250 kilometers away. Maybe you're coming from Alexandria. That's about 800 kilometers away. Maybe you're coming from Babylon. That's 1,500 kilometers away. And you bring your little lamb with you. That's a long way to carry a lamb, right? But people did anyway, because you didn't have a lot of money. You were poor. You'd bring your own dove, your own lamb, whatever animal you're ready to sacrifice, you'd come all the way to Jerusalem for the Passover and the priest would look at the animal you brought in and he'd say, oh, this animal's not good. There's a defect. There's a little birthmark here because the animals had to be spotless, perfect. You've just walked 200 kilometers, 500, 800, 1,500 kilometers carrying that lamb, that cow, whatever it is you've brought along. That's a huge trek. Imagine going from here to Bundaberg, to where? Coffs Harbor. 1,500 kilometers walking. And when you get there, the priest says, I'm sorry, your animal isn't good. But what can you do? You can't go home. It's a two, three, four, five-week journey. Well, I've got a solution for you, says the priest. You can go down back to that portico where we have temple shops. Now, guess who owned and ran the temple shops? Take a guess. Anyone? The priest. The high priest was basically the big boss at the top, and everybody had to pay a commission. And most of the were run by his brothers, by his cousins, by his nephews. And when you went to the temple, if you'd gone a couple of times, you'd learned your lesson. Don't bring your own animal. They're always going to find a defect with your animals. So you always brought money. Now, normally, a pair of doves would cost, let's say, the equivalent of $10 if you went to the shop today. But when you went to the temple to buy a pair of doves, guess how much it cost? One denarius. What's one denarius? A day's wage. What's an average wage in Melbourne? Let's say $200 to make it easy, right? Let's just say $200. So normally at the shop, you pay $10 and you buy 
your doves, even from Jerusalem, but not from the temple shops. And you go and the priests know that the temple animals have a little tag. And he looks at it. It doesn't have a temple tag. You didn't buy it from there. He says, oh, it's a defect dove. It's a defect lamb. You've got to go buy it there. So everybody knew they had to buy the animals from the temple shops, which had a hugely inflated artificial price. Now, that's the normal going rate. Now, if you wanted to buy a lamb, that was four days worth of work. If you wanted to buy a ram, that was eight days. If you wanted to buy a calf, that was 20 denarii. Maybe an ox. Hey, now you're getting up in prices. You have to work an entire year to sacrifice an ox. Now, this was off-peak rates. Don't you hate it when the electricity company says off-peak, on-peak? I don't even know what off and on-peak are. and It doesn't work, but they had off-peak rates. Now, on-peak rates... When it was Passover, guess how much a pair of doves cost for Passover? Take a guess. Lucky guess. Five. You're very generous. 25 denarii. Now, in order to come to the temple, you had to bring a sacrifice. And the doves were for the poorest of the poor. If you're a bit wealthier, you needed to offer a lamb or a ram or a calf or an ox. You had to bring a sacrifice and it usually had to be from the temple, and it was a pair of doves. You had to work a entire month to come and offer one sacrifice. When you could barely afford to eat, you were a, a substance farmer, you know, you'd, you'd live off what you grew on your farm. While the high priest is literally one of the richest men in the world, in the world, probably the only other richer person was Caesar in Rome, because he ran the world. It was a good position to have. That's why you didn't become high priest by being a nice guy. They would kill each other to become high priest. There were internal wars between the priestly families as to who would get the coveted position of running the temple market. So Jesus comes, and is Jesus happy that these people are killing each other, bribing their way to the top, and then hurting the poor and innocent average worshipper who comes to church? You want to come to Melbourne Exchange? Well, it's going to cost you $200 to sit on that chair. 100 there, 50 there, 25 there. No wonder Jesus is angry. Is Jesus angry? Does he hate the priests? Does he hate people? No. But he's angry at the things these people are doing. Again and again and again. We don't see Jesus hating people, but Jesus is angry at the outcomes. Just a few decades later, the priests had hurt people so much in Jerusalem that the people turned against the priests. They killed each other for a few years. Eventually, they locked themselves up in Jerusalem, killed all the Romans in Jerusalem, fought against the Roman army, and more than a million Jews, including the high priest and his family and cousins and relatives, all lost their lives. If they had only listened to Jesus, did he try to warn them? Yeah. He said, you've made this house, this church, you've made it a mafia scene. You made it a crime den. He tried to warn them. He did that twice during his life. Did they listen? No. What was the outcome? They killed each other. You see, every time we ignore the God of the Bible, we end up hurting ourselves. He doesn't hate us. He's never angry with us. I'm going to skip that one. When we get angry at something evil, our anger turns into hate for the person too. How many people think with affection towards Hitler? When the name Osama bin Laden gets thrown about, do you get warm and fuzzies? No. You see, we struggle to separate anger at evil 
from hate for the person. God is exactly the opposite to us. God is angry at evil, but he hates the outcome. He can separate his emotions and still love the person and yet hate very much what they're doing. And when you look at this God who seems angry in the Old Testament, God is reacting to the outcome and doing the best, making the best out of a really difficult situation that we've come uh, up with. I just want to finish with this story. I'm not sure if you've ever seen James on TV. James, that's James, and this is Muhammad. If you saw James and Muhammad coming into church, you'd think of them as, you know, beautiful young boys, bright, intelligent, the world before them. That guy had a couple of degrees. Um, James, Muhammad, went on and got a, a Bachelor of Science, ended up working in Kuwait for a software company, and his bosses said that he was the best worker they ever had. He came from relatively good homes, and, uh, you know, if you were the parent of either of these children, you'd love them, you'd be proud of them, and you'd want them well. But most of us don't know these photos of James and Muhammad because that's probably a more familiar photo that we've seen on the news. James and Muhammad. How would you feel if James was your child? How would you feel if Muhammad was your child? You've done the best to raise them. You've loved them. You've given freedom of choice. And you had to, because if you enslaved them and didn't give them freedom, well, forget about having children, forget about being happy, forget about relationships and love. Messy situation? <laughs> really messy. Is God to blame? God loves and he gives freedom, and these men made different choices. And it wasn't just, I mean, James was a journalist, but David Haynes, Alan Kessing, a few of the others, they were humanitarian workers. They went there to help the people of Syria. They made choices to help and others made choices to kill. And I'm wondering, if James was Richard Dawkins' child, how do you think Richard Dawkins would feel? Do you think he'd be angry just a little bit? Or do you think he'd say, my son James, survival of the fittest. Buddy, bad luck. You made a bad choice. If you couldn't survive this planet, then you're not fit to be on this planet. Do you think that's how Richard would be feeling if James was his child? Or do you think he'd be angry? Do you think he'd feel a little bit like the God of the Old Testament? I think he would. Do you think he'd want to tear Muhammad to bits? I think Richard would. How do you make the best out of a situation like this? How do you solve it? How do you deal with it? You know, the God of the Bible dealt with it in a way that none of us could ever come up with and none of us would ever be tempted to do. He said, this is how I'm going to deal with it. Muhammad, Jihadi John, as we know him, Jihadi John needs to be punished. It's not right. It is not right that somebody in cold blood could slit the throat of somebody else who's come here to help him. It's not right. But here's my solution. He deserves to be punished. But I love, I hate what he's doing, but I love Jihadi John. He's my child. I can separate the two. And I'm going to send my son, and my son is going to die for him. My son is going to go through the most excruciating, painful possible death and give John a way out. Give Muhammad a solution. If he accepts me as his saviour, I've taken that punishment for him. I've died for him that he can be forgiven and live. And you might say, well, that's not fair. What about justice and punishment? Well, God says, I took the punishment. There is justice. Somebody paid. Somebody really suffered for the sins of John, but it didn't have to be John. I suffered. 
for the sins of John. I took that upon myself. Well, what about James? When does James get justice? Don't worry about James. James is my child. I love James. I want justice for James. And I'm going to give James an eternity of justice. He's coming home with me. And when he experiences heaven and eternity with me, he's going to forget about what happened there. It was a painful, horrible experience that humans with freedom of choice imposed upon each other. But James is going to be okay. I'll look after him. Leave that with me. Don't you worry about James. And John? Well, John has a choice. I've died for him. I've bled for him. I've paid for him. And I want John with me too because he's my child. And I've made sure that there has been consequences. There's been a Calvary. There's been a sacrifice. Somebody paid so that John might live. And when God looks at you and I, he doesn't look at us with anger. He doesn't see you as John or James. He doesn't see you by your activities or by your actions. He sees you at his. It doesn't matter what your talent is. It doesn't matter what your ability is. It doesn't matter your wealth or who you are. They make no difference. He just looks at you and says, my child. That's it. Simple. My son, my daughter. And then he looks at our outcomes, at our activities, totally separate to us. And he says, if you continue down this path, you're going to hurt yourself and you're going to hurt others. Or you can let me be your saviour. You can let me forgive your sins. You can let me transform and renew you, prepare you like we were talking last night for eternity. I want you with me forever, not just a few years on earth. I want you forever. Will you let me? In Revelation, we're not going to read the entire passage, but in Revelation he talks about God creating a new heaven and a new earth. And he says there will be no more tears, no more suffering, no more pain. He says, I will be with them. They will be my people. Can you imagine coming out of your house in the morning and, uh, you know, you're just watching people walk by the street and all of a sudden there's God walking past. Good morning, God. Hello. <laughs> How you doing, Shannon? How you doing, Janelle? How you doing, Vanessa? How you doing, Russell? I'm doing well. That's good. And had a good night's rest? Well, yeah, it was fantastic. Heaven's not a bad place. I could get used to living here forever. Well, I'm glad because you will be here forever. No more sorrow, no more sadness. That's God's intention. That's God's plan. That's what God wants for us. Does he get angry? Yes, he does. He gets angry when we hurt ourselves. I get angry when Caitlin hurts Sienna. I get very angry. Do I hate Sienna? Do I hate Caitlin? No way. I hate their actions and I do everything to help them to make up and kiss. God has exactly the same heart. Final verse, Revelation 21, verse 7. We read that last night. Jesus says, He who overcomes, he who lets me transform their actions to those that bring happiness to themselves and others, I will be his God, they will be my child, and I will give them everything. Not just one world, not just two, but the universe. I've got some friends that are going to hand out a little slip of paper that just has a few questions, and I'd like to give you uh, an opportunity, an invitation to reflect on some of the things we've uh, learned, some of the things we've explored over the last few days, last night, today, through the workshops as well. I'd like you to. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to to respond, to not just say, "Well, I've heard it, that's it," but to to explore further, to dig deeper, think about these things more. Your life matters. You were destined. For eternity, you were destined to be an heir of God, not just to live a few years on this measly planet and then hope for an eternity with the worms. The first one there says, I would like to respond to Christ, to Jesus, by starting personal Bible studies to prepare for baptism. And that's simply an invitation to say, I'd like to learn more and I'd like to, I'd like to get to know Jesus. I'd like a saviour like the one we've described and discussed and gotten to know tonight. 
Baptism, well, it's nothing scary. It's not a drowning experience per se. It's simply an experience where you say, you know what, I appreciate what he's done for me. I want to give my life to him. It's, I want to make a commitment and say, hey, from here on, I want him to make me a better person, make my life better, and I want this to be the beginning of eternity rather than the end of few short, a few short years here on earth. The second point there, just put a tick, says join a prayer group. We talked about prayer this morning. If you'd like to learn more about prayer, if you'd like to have someone pray with you, to be involved in regularly communicating with God and learning to talk to God, please tick that one there. Join a small group. It's a very relaxed and informal way every week to have a meal together, to, to share some food, share some laughs, some music, and to explore the Bible uh, very different to what we did over this weekend. This was sort of jug-to-mug approach. I talk, you listen, not very easy to interact. A small group is a fantastic opportunity to, to sit down with a group of friends, much smaller group, and uh, actually ask questions about some of the things you read. Explore, challenge, learn, and grow together. Finally, if you'd like to, if you have some specific questions, you'd like to talk to a member of the pastoral team, Roy and Jinha, just tick that. They'll follow up, give you a call, write you an email, get in touch with you if you have some specific questions about some of the things that we've looked at over the weekend. And the last one there, other, um, if there's something on your heart different to what's on there and you have any sort of request, if you'd like some, some guidance, if you'd like something specific that hasn't been on there but you'd like someone to connect with you or to get in touch with you, just tick that there, put your name email address, mobile number there. Um, and this isn't an opportunity for Roy and Jinha to stalk you. They are very nice, kind people, and they're not into the stalking business. I can guarantee you that. But it's just an opportunity. So I'd love to, to get in touch. I'd love to learn more, to explore more. Um, maybe even I have a lot of questions. I don't agree with a lot of things, but hey, I want to talk to somebody about this. And Roy and Jinha are here for you to be able to do that. So um, I'll let you um, fill those out. Write those up. I'd like to just pray together before we finish. And uh, then I think, uh, is it Daryl or someone? Is, if you'd like to just fold them and pass them into the middle and somebody will collect those just after I pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible goodness and for your love for us. We thank you that uh, you're never angry with us. You love us and that love never changes. And we thank you that you desire only the best for us to be happy now and forever. As we read the Bible, Lord, we sometimes get confused in some of the things you've done. Help us to dig deeper. Help us to really understand why you did the things you did. And help us experience your love in our lives. Guide us, lead us, and teach us. May we have the lives, the kind of lives and the kind of actions that will bring joy and fulfillment to our lives and to those around us. We thank you for all things, especially for Jesus who paid for our sins. In his name we come to you. Amen.